0: If you would, please turn back with me to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. So I guess what's become apparent as we've begun to to work through the book of Jonah is that the book of Jonah is kind of like being on a seesaw, isn't it, the amount of ups and downs that you've got in Jonah you know it starts with the sort of the down of uh, Jonah running away from from God and then you've got the ups of the sailors being saved and you've got the down of uh, Jonah being lobbed into the water and then you've got the, the ups of his rescue by the fish well tonight What we come to is surely the the highest of the high points in the book of Jonah, isn't it? Because tonight, what we have got in front of us is surely, come on, it's got to be one of the, the greatest accounts of spiritual revival that has ever happened. What we've got here tonight is the saving... Of the city of Nineveh, the saving of the whole of the city of Nineveh. Okay. So, what what we'll aim to do tonight is we will aim to approach the text and uh, to think about draw out three aspects of what we've got here in the storyline. Okay. Three aspects. What I'll do is I will uh, uh, mention all of those three headings just now. Okay. So these hopefully are the the three points that we'll look at this evening. Ready for them? Firstly, we're going to think about God's unshakable purposes. Firstly, God's unshakable purposes. Secondly, we will consider uh, Jonah, and we'll consider Jonah's unhesitating proclamation. And then thirdly, provided the clock permits it, We will look at Nineveh's universal penitence. Okay, so God's unshakable purposes, then Jonah's unhesitating proclamation, and then we'll get to the sort of Nineveh's universal proclamation. So you've got the three points. We've all got those. So let's begin. Let's think about the first one. God's unshakable purposes. God's unshakable purposes. Right Now, what happens when we move into chapter 3 of the book of Jonah is that we are entering into the second half of the book Okay, Now, what we find when we do that is that the second half of the book of Jonah parallels much of what happens in the first half There's lots and lots of similarities between the second half and the first half right? Think about that one In chapter 1 what have you got? In chapter 1, you've got this kind of build-up, this big crescendo. Where does it lead? It leads to the salvation of the pagan sailors, right? Well, in chapter 3, what, you, what have you got? The parallel passage. What you've got is this big, massive crescendo. What does it lead up to? It leads up to the salvation of the pagan city. Okay, the, 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 the pagan sailors, the pagan city. There's, there's, there's lots and lots of different parallels here. And perhaps the most obvious example these parallels is at the beginning of the chapter that we've just read the beginning of chapter three because look the beginning of what we read tonight it mirrors almost exactly almost word for word the beginning of the book doesn't it it mirrors almost exactly the beginning of chapter one so you think about what what happens in those first verses that we read together Well, we're told that just as in chapter 1, God's word comes to this man Jonah. Okay, again. And what else happens? Well, God's word comes to him and tells him to go to Nineveh. So chapter 3 is... Chapter 3 is an almost exact repeat of the commission that Jonah gets in chapter 1. And I think because of that, because of the similarities here, I think we can establish a couple of really quite important points here. First, think about this one. Despite what seemed like real failures with Jonah, the methods of God in chapter 3 remain unchanging. The methods of God... Remain unchanging. You see, in, in chapter 1, what, what's God done? Chapter 1, God has he's called one of his people into action. Okay, He's called one of his people to go out with, with his word, hasn't he? And what's happened? Well, that, 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 that person in question, the guy Jonah, has really, you know, he has really made a mess of it, hasn't he? I mean, he is just, he has made an incredible mess of it. But that doesn't mean that what, what God does is go back to the drawing board. Does it mean it's not like, you know, God says to himself, Okay, uh, Jonah's not doing what I've asked him. This isn't working. So I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll stop using my word. And I'll, I'll stop using uh, my own people, these weak People, I'll stop doing that and I'll, I'll find a new way. That's not what God says, is it? No, what happens in, in chapter three, what happens? God uses exactly the same methodology. I mean, God uses this consistent method, the same method that he used in, in chapter one. And do you know what? Throughout the Bible, you're going to find the same thing. I mean, from Moses to, let's go for, Paul. And from Elijah, let's say, to to Timothy, God works. God saves his people. How does he do that? He saves his people through this, through the word, and the word coming to people through weak and fragile believers just like you and me. So I think to start out with tonight we should be fairly encouraged we should be encouraged that God's method in chapter 3 does not change God uses people like you and like me so the method remains unchanging but I think more than that this commission in chapter 3 is the same as chapter 1 also shows us that God's Focus Remains the same So his method remains the same But also his focus Remains the same What, what does that mean? Yeah, well I'm sure that Lots of you are familiar um, With the story that surrounds John Calvin The reformer And his gap from, from preaching In Geneva I'm sure that if we've not mentioned it before, I'm sure that you've you've read about it yourself. You know, Calvin was preaching in Geneva and he was preaching through the New Testament, parts of the New Testament. I think it was at this time, I think, preaching through the, the, the Paul-like letters. But he was preaching and he got into trouble with the local council in Geneva and eventually it sort of it, it snowballed and Calvin got kicked out of the city. He got kicked out of Geneva. Now, when... Calvin eventually got back to Geneva and when he eventually got back into the pulpit uh, what he did was he began his first sermon there from the point that he had left off years and years previously when he got kicked out he picked it up just where he left off years and years before See, despite all that taken place in between times Despite the problems, despite the gap in time, Calvin had remained fixed on that portion of scripture. And I think we see something here It's very similar to that. Something similar that involves God, don't we? Because you see, in chapter 1, God tells Jonah to go where? He tells him to go to Nineveh. And you see, despite the problems, despite the the gap in time, despite all the absolute chaos that that Jonah has caused, in chapter 3, where does God call Jonah to go? He tells him to go back to the same place. He tells him to go to Nineveh. It's not the case, you see, that, 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 that God says, Right, Jonah, here's how it is. Because there was a problem with Nineveh, because things didn't go well, because Nineveh's a, a long, long way away. See, this time, now that time's gone on a wee bit, I tell you what, I'll send you to Babylon. It's not that God said, right, okay, it didn't work with Nineveh, we'll, we'll send you to Damascus. That's not what God said at all, is it? No, what we've got to see here is that God's saving focus is not capricious. God's saving focus is not something that is in any way erratic. See, in chapter 1, God was fixed on the people of Nineveh. So in chapter 3, what happens? He returns for them. God was fixed upon the people of Nineveh. God loved the people of Nineveh. See, he's God. He knew very well that when they're confronted with the word of God, that these people would repent and he is focused on them. He's fixed in these people. Do you see it? If not, look at verse 3. Have a look at verse 3 for me. The NIV says, Nineveh was a very important city. You see, they miss out two words. There's two words that are not there that are in the original. Because in the Hebrew it says, literally, Nineveh was a very important city to God. It was a very important city to God. God was fixed. He was fixed on these people. And I ask you tonight, here and now, do you see the encouragement that we should take from that? Do you see the encouragement we should take from the fact that that God's focus is not shifting, that it is unchanging. Because we see here in chapter 1 and chapter 3 that when God identifies a people for himself, do you know what happens? He never moves from those people. Never moves from those people. What we see here is that if you are a child of God, tonight, it's a beautiful thing. That God has identified you. That he's he he loves you, yes, and he has attached himself to you in Jesus Christ. He is entirely and eternally focused on you. God is fixed, fixed on his people. But perhaps even more importantly than that, given the context, do you see that the encouragement here that we should take for our witness, you know, for our evangelism, because you see, this, this, this repetition between chapter 3 chapter 1, we see in it that God has, in Nineveh, identified a people that he is going to work in and bring into salvation, right? And you see, that's the same, it's the same case in London. That God has identified that he is Fixed on people that you know. That he's fixed on people that, that that you know who are perhaps just now unsaved. But these are people that, that, that God is, is going to work in. That he's identified a people that he's going to work in. That he's going to bring through to, to righteousness and salvation in Jesus Christ. Just as God was fixed in Nineveh, God is fixed. He is fixed on people who live in London. So, just as the question at the beginning of chapter 3 is not so much whether God has identified the people, it's whether Jonah is going to go to those people. So the question for us tonight that we've got to wrestle with, it isn't so much has God identified people in London the question is more, are you and I going to be obedient? And are we going to go to those people with the message of the gospel? You see here, there is repetition. In chapter 3, chapter 1, we see God's unshakable purposes. Okay, let's move on. The second point we see here is um, jonah 's unhesitating proclamation his unhesitating proclamation and i uh, I was listening recently to a, a famous minister from the states, and the guy was given the, the account it was a testimony meeting you know so he's he was speaking to this large congregation, he was was given an account of his testimony, but also as part of that is is called to the ministry. And he he said that at that time in his life, that what happened was that he sort of went under this, or underwent a sort of dramatic change in his attitude to reading. He said that, you know, before he was a Christian, that uh, when he was younger, he used to just hate reading and just, hated books. I think he said during this meeting that in the first 25 years of his life that he wasn't sure that he'd actually read a a single book all the way through. You know, he just saw a book and responded, absolutely hated it. But he went on to say that one of the sort of striking things about his conversion, striking thing about his call to the ministry was the, the change that God worked in his attitude to reading. You know, that when he became a Christian, when he felt this call to the ministry, that he began to love reading. You know, he began to really, really want to, to study and 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 to read books. His response to reading, his response had radically altered, and it's a sort of change in response that, we're, that we witness here with with Jonah, isn't it? I mean, previously, when he's confronted with the word of God, we know what's happened. You know, previously, his response to the word of God was, you know, flee and run away as as quickly as he could in the opposite direction. But now, we're at chapter 3, and he's confronted with the very same thing. What's his response? Entirely different, isn't it? I mean, his response now... He's told it to, to, to get up and go to Nineveh, and his response here: what does he do? He gets up and he goes. He gets up and he goes. Now, I think we could legitimately focus on the fact that, that what Jonah does here is a, a bold proclamation, isn't it? You know, we could focus on the fact that this commission that he's got that involves a, a dangerous, a really quite a difficult journey to Nineveh, a journey of about 500 miles. You know? The fact that when he gets to Nineveh, he's going to be confronted with a pretty difficult people. These are pagan people. These are people who are traditional enemies of God. Really, we could focus on the fact that this takes guts. You know, it takes real courage. We could also focus on the kind of flip side of the coin. What about the clarity of his proclamation? Did you see that? I mean, he's a dude of uh, very few words, really, isn't he? I think his what he says to Nineveh in the, the original is about five words. Look at it. It says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. So it's a pretty concise message that he's got. It's pretty clear. We could focus on that. Friends, instead, let's do this. Let's focus on the fact that what Jonah engages in here is just undelayed, unhesitating proclamation. Unhesitating. Look at verse 3 with me. We're told in verse 3 that a visit to Nineveh required three days, right? I read that first fall and I thought, what a curious statement that is, isn't it? It is, it's a bit strange. A visit to Nineveh required three days. Now, now what does that mean? There's the usual, there's disagreement about it. But what it could mean, what we might have is the idea of a sort of official visit. So, you know the thing, picture it, you know, Queen Elizabeth, she goes on a state visit. And you know how there's bound to be like loads and loads of protocol and hoops to jump through with that. Well, it could be something like that. Because in ancient times, an ambassador would very often require three days for a visit. Okay, if he goes to a city, the first day would be a sort of official welcome into the city. The second day would be about the official business. The third day would be the kind of official send-off. Is he with me? Could be that. But perhaps more likely is the idea that just given the, you know, the scale or the proportions of Nineveh, that given Jonah's task, it's going to take him quite a while to get round the city. A visit required three days. You see, regardless of which of those is right, what is important is verse four. What is important is what Jonah does here in verse 4. If your Bibles are open, just have a wee glance down to verse 4. Would we see? Read it. On the first day, Jonah goes into the city. On the first day, he goes into the city. And what does he do? He proclaims the message. Do you, do you see this, the thrust of it here? There's, Jonah's not got any time for a sort of official settling in period. Jonah's not got the the time, there's just no time to to settle in, to find, to sort of lie the land, to get his bearings on the city. There's just absolutely no time, no time for any of that. He comes through the city gate, he enters the city, he gets into the city, and immediately, immediately, there's a sense that he proclaims this message from God. It is unhesitating proclamation. And I tell you, friends, we... In London, need to be following that example. We need desperately to be following Jonah on this. And if we do, we will have a greater impact on our city. You see, what, 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 what all too often happens is that when we are confronted by a new situation, like Jonah was, or we are confronted by, by new people, what, what we tend to do is try to delay, or maybe even temporarily disguise our Christianity. I and mean, we 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 delay a lot our attempts at witnessing for Jesus Christ so that we can f- maybe feel comfortable with our surroundings or are or, or, or comfortable with the people that we are speaking to. But perhaps, perhaps our approach should be different to that. See, if, like Jonah, we find ourselves in a new situation, perhaps we should walk into that new situation really eager and and desperate to to find an opportunity to, to, to talk about God. So think about it. If we find ourselves with new flatmates, okay, But if we find ourselves with with new work colleagues, we shouldn't delay these things. You know, if if they speak to us and say, "Okay, tell us a little bit about yourself and what do you like doing, see the weekends, what do you do," we shouldn't hide away our our Christianity. We shouldn't just maybe utter a sort of little vague uh, mention of church, like Jonah. It should be bold. Yeah, there should be there should be some clarity. We should utter those words that we so seldom utter. Actually, I'm a Christian. Actually, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ. I tell you what a difference it would make if we as Christians in London, did not hide our light under a bowl. What a difference did we make. What a difference it did make to Nineveh. On the first day, Jonah spoke. So we've seen God's unshakable purposes. That he continues with the method, his word. And we've seen That he remains fixed on his people. And we've seen that Jonah did not delay in his proclamation. We close thirdly with Nineveh. Nineveh's universal penitence. Penitence, contrition. Now, uh, I really don't know what came over me this week. um, Because... I read another account of a famous minister's testimony. don't normally spend my time doing this, but I clearly did this week. And the man in question, um, he spoke of the fact um, that, that, that he was converted, that he came to Christ when one phrase just kept going over and over in his mind. He'd been speaking to a friend and they just asked him the question, Son, are you saved? Son, are you saved? And this kept going round in his mind and eventually God used that eh, to bring this man eh, to salvation. Well, again, we, we see something similar to that here because towards the end of the chapter that we've got, God uses just a few words, doesn't he? God uses these few words that Jonah speaks and. Preaches and uses these few words to convert the whole of the city of Nineveh. So what, what have we got here? What, what do we notice? Well, I think if we look closely, what we see towards the end of the chapter are the two necessary elements for salvation. The two necessary elements of salvation. Do you see those here? I mean, firstly, we're told of Nineveh's faith. Aren't we? Verse 5 says that Nineveh believed God. Now, Jonah, Jonah comes, speaks, and Nineveh believed God. Now, what happens in that sentence is the word believed is taken out, and it is put at the beginning of the sentence to emphasize that these people really believed, you know. There's an emphasis on their faith. But more than that, there's a Hebrew idiom here that means that they didn't just believe this message from God. You know, Jonah says, you know, this judgment's coming, and it says that they believed God. Now, we could think they just believed this message. But the the Hebrew idiom shows us it's more than that. These people, this city, they believed in the God behind the message. They truly didn't just trust the message, they truly trusted in God. There is faith here. But there's also the other necessary element for salvation, isn't there? Because we've got faith. What else do we see? Well, we see repentance, don't we? I mean, surely if anything in this passage we see these people repentance. I mean, what sincerity, you know? Here is a city. Try and picture this. This is a city that fasts. A city where nobody is eaten. This is a city that that, that sees uh, the people uh, dress in sackcloth, that adopt the customs of of grieving over death, such as their fear of this judgment that Jonah speaks about, such as their sense of worthlessness before God. There is faith, but there's repentance too. The necessary elements of salvation. Right, that's fine. Just want to end with this. let's end with the fact that there was repentance and faith from everyone in the city. Does that not blow your mind? Everyone. This is a whole city saved by the grace of God. You see, what we're told is that the citizens of this city repent. We're told that. And then, we're told after that, that the king issues a decree for everyone. This decree ensuring that everyone's going to be praying and everyone's going to be dressing in sackcloth. Now, consider what it would mean if those things were reversed. Follow me in this. You know, if we we were told in this portion of scripture that the people had faith and the people repented after the king's decree. Not before the king's decree, after the king's decree. I think when we were reading it, we would just assume that these people went through the sort of fasting and the sackcloth and all that just out of obedience to this king. Wouldn't you? If it came afterwards, we would think it was some sort of symbolic faith, some sort of symbolic Repentance rather than something genuine and sincere. You see, that, that isn't what we've got here. You see, before the king has said a word, what we told, before the king's pronounced this decree, what we told, we're told that from the greatest to the least, these people bowed before God. We're confronted, we're confronted with the essential truth here that what was needed for salvation was not just repentance and faith that what was needed for salvation was personal faith and personal repentance, not some sort of representative thing, not some sort of figurative thing and friends that's how it has to be for us see we hear often of people who Who think that they are Christians because they live in America, or people who think that they are Christians because they live in the United Kingdom, supposedly Christian countries. So that makes them Christians. And we hear about people who talk about their sort of fantastic spiritual lineage. You know how many people have talked to me and said to me, oh, do you know, Sonny, uh, I've got uh, an uncle, an uncle, a great uncle who was a a free church elder. And they think that somehow that that is going to make them right with God. That it's going to improve their status with God. We see, what we see here is that the people's repentance is recorded before the king's decree, that what was necessary for one Ninevite salvation was personal faith, personal repentance. So I'll close with this. This is it. Last thing. Have you done what we're talking about here? What we read in Jonah chapter 3 Repenting of your sin. Faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. You done these things? Are these things real to you? If not, let tonight be the night that they are. And if you have, and you know, if you're sitting there tonight and you're a Christian, and you're sitting there tonight and you're a, a child of God, be thankful this evening that, that as with these people, the, the people of Nineveh, what has repentance and faith led to? Well, be thankful that it has led to a turning away of God's wrath, that repentance and faith has led to the eternal compassion of God. We thank God tonight, do we not, that in Jesus Christ, What he has done is he has identified the people and he has fixed himself to us. Tonight, if you're a Christian, God is fixed on you. Let's pray.